Welcome to After the Bell with your host, Laura. This podcast is a series of conversations with educators, leaders, and lifelong learners with the hope of deconstructing some of the stereotypes around education. My objective as a teacher is to focus on the passion, humanity, and hope around education and to provide a platform for the myriad of voices that have something to say and teach us all. If you would like to know more about me, please head to my Instagram page at educatinglaura. Hello everyone and welcome to season three of After the Bell with Educating Laura. So when I began this podcast in 2020, it was me at home in the middle of the pandemic, not technically teaching, doing some tutoring work on maternity leave. I then followed that up in 2021. My year back in the classroom after four years away from the profession and speaking mainly to people within the classroom or in schools And so season three, my tact is a little different, and that is to look at educators that are working outside the conventional classroom. So people that are educating and teaching and informing the education system from outside. And so my guest today is Josh Reed Jones. So he is the founder of the Just Be Nice Project. And if you don't follow him on socials, check out the show notes because I'll put all his information in there. He is an absolute force. I have been following him for a little while. I've enjoyed his content. I think that he is really courageous and compassionate. And I think that those are two really amazing things to be an incredible teacher and educator. And he's trying to just make a big impact in really small and actionable ways. And I think that that is really the best way to make change. So I reached out Really excited to have this conversation with him and I know that you'll get a lot out of it. If you like the episode, please share it. Tag me at Educating Laura and Josh at Josh Reed Jones. Check him out at the JBN Project as well. He is willing and able to support many of you in some of the change that you would like to make in your businesses as well as at the school level. I have already booked in some conversations with Kirsten Kobabe, who is in California, she labels herself a teen whisperer. I have Jenna, who is a huge advocate for social change and using mathematics and data to enact those really important conversations. I have Dr. Mary Hemphill, who I had on last season, but we spoke more about her role as a principal. We are now talking about her role as an educational leader for North Carolina. So lots of really exciting conversations coming up. If you would like to get into contact with me and if you think that you would be a great fit for this series or you know someone, feel free to go to my Instagram page and Educating Laura. And you can, if you go to the link in my bio, you can actually leave me a voice note, which I'm starting to receive more and more of, which I really, really appreciate. It's really great to get in contact with you. So feel free to do that. I think that's kind of enough for me. And so here is my conversation with Josh. Hello, Josh. How are you? It's so nice to have you here. I'm very well, thank you. It's a pleasure. Thank you for for having me on this beautiful sunny morning. I appreciate it. It sure is. I just want to jump straight in and ask you, how and what do you teach? It's a good question. Impact literacy is what I would say. I teach people what good help looks like, how to measure it, how to do it, how to engage with it, how to better understand interventions and, and ways to do work with people and communities that that need help and to better understand those needs and identify them. So 
impact literacy is probably what I'd say I teach teach the most in the broadest sense. And then out of that, there's lots of little bits and pieces, lots of little fun things that come out of doing that work. And how do you do that? What are your sort of methods and modes of, of teaching those kinds of things? I think it's really important to engage in conversations. It's hard to know what people's gaps in their knowledge are for anything if you don't allow them to sort of communicate back or have or to get that feedback in real time. And you can spend a lot of time talking about something that might be correct, but if they don't understand the first couple of sort of fundamental premises that you're speaking about, then like it's pointless to do the rest, you know? So it's worth having a, it's worth having a chat. And I think to really educate and change people's minds, an ongoing conversation is the best vehicle to do that because it gives them a chance to contemplate, come back with questions. It gives them a chance to process information and work out what they don't understand as well and bring that back. So I think that probably predominantly I'm just trying to facilitate and have lots of long conversations with lots of people, places and and institutions in that space and allowing them to come around to learning and understanding in in their time as well. (laughs) Social media is obviously the way that I got to find out who you are. How does that play into that long-term conversation that you feel you're having or trying to have with everybody? I've always just tried to do things on social media that I thought were maybe not pandering to the algorithm or maybe everything that people want to hear. I haven't always had the attention on social media that I'm I'm very uh, privileged to have now. Uh, But if you go back, you know, scroll through my Instagram like seven years, I've been talking about all this stuff the whole time. It's just no one, no one really was, well, not no one, but not that many people were paying attention uh, relative to to the attention that I'm, I'm fortunate to have now. I've always just tried to 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 keep that conversation going in all those different areas that I think it's important to keep bringing focus on the things that people maybe don't have at the forefront of their mind or different ways of looking at things that I think are beneficial or bringing into the conversation an example of how to have conversations about difficult things too. There's very little middle ground in a lot of serious issues, there's people screaming and yelling, there's people that are extremely frustrated, there's people that don't get it and don't care and are sort of vitriolic in their responses to people even bringing those issues up. And so I just try and be like, well, here's, here's how we can talk about this stuff in a way that, that has a point but doesn't have to be so aggressive all the time about everything. So I've just tried to do that and through practice and repetition and, and effort, lots and lots of effort. I guess that's that's what you see now. It's a little bit uh, a little bit more polished maybe than than some people that just sort of thinking about how they might want to do that in the future or, or at the moment. I'm really interested, obviously I'm a high school teacher and we have so many big things going on for our young people. I mean they've been at home for the last two years getting their information primarily probably from social media and from people that maybe aren't the best people to be delivering information. And it's very hard. You've got to really consider where that information is coming from. And I think that you're very good at suggesting ways of informing yourself in kind of a wholehearted way rather than just taking one element. What are some of the things you'd like to see maybe going on in schools 
that are addressing some of these big things I mean, teachers should be the people that are the safe adults that are well-informed, that are having these conversations, and yet oftentimes we can feel quite restricted even in schools to discuss. What are your thoughts on things mm-hmm. like that? I think there's almost an over-focus on the large issues, to be honest. Mm-hmm. It's not easier to help a million people than it is to help one. It's not easier to change the minds of a million people than it is to change the minds of one. So stop worrying about the enormity of the mission all the time and communicating that if the kids aren't looking after each other who cares what they're telling everyone to do on the internet or who cares what their aspirations are for changing the world you know you've got people to the left and right of you look after them if the school's a mess why are we doing all this environmental studies talking about it making posters getting them to do projects and then they're throwing their rubbish on the floor or kicking things over, you know, if you're not doing it closer to home, it doesn't get easier when you try and do it at scale. And it's trite advice sometimes. It sounds like that to be like, look after where you are. But what it does when you when you start trying to look after the people and places that are that you've got a direct hand on right away, you realize that the feedback that you get is delayed. If it's not always good, that it's difficult, that you stumble all the time, that things go wrong that people don't care, that people don't care about your good intentions all the time, that you can be right and people still don't want to listen and that you have to work out how to engage the person whose mind you're trying to change in a way that keeps them in the conversation, that if you just walk away from every conversation where people don't agree with you very quickly, it's easy to be like, oh, we need to change the whole way that people talk to women or the way that we deal with people who have who are migrants But if you haven't been able to change the person in your classroom's attitude, it doesn't get easier when you just get more eyeballs on you. Once you've been through that process of changing the person next to you's mind and you realize how difficult it is and how engaged you need to be, one, you're building a stronger community around you, which keeps people feeling better, feeling more engaged, having more avenues to contribution and all those wonderful and important things. But you also realize like, if I just get up and make an announcement, it's probably not going to have this huge impact that I think it's going to have. So I think that one of the huge challenges facing kids is that they're constantly confronted with the like enormous challenges and then held up examples of people that are trying to, I suppose, do huge things. Who are the people that we hold up? We hold up Malala, we hold up Greta Thunberg. And yeah, they've got big platforms, but they're also just children who are also engaged in the process of learning how to maybe actually affect some change there's two of those people and you're in a room with 20 people every day like there's 20 people right there do something there you'll learn how how to make change by doing that work so i think for teachers it's about engaging in where you are and keep bringing it back not to small goals because we obviously need to we need some large action to to make significant changes to to structures and challenges that we're having But if you can't do it in the room that you're in, you can't do it in the world, not effectively. You're speaking to me on so many levels because the pandemic has created real sense of disconnect. And I found since coming back, I was on maternity leave for four years and came back right in the middle of the pandemic. And the kids are quite significantly different. And for me, a lot of that is the fact that there is zero to little connection to school community and to educators to what's actually going on at school because they're they're almost not willing to connect because anything that they've sort of put in long-term plans has been taken away obviously because of remote learning etc and so 
that's been a really big goal for me is to try and to create community again, connection again, investment again in the people that are educating them and also their peers and people that are there to support them. I mean, teenagers especially need a community of safe adults, not just one, you know, and I'm I'm finding at the moment that to be quite, you know, something you think wouldn't be as challenging as some of those larger conversations, but is in fact quite a difficult feat at the moment. Yeah. And so many things are intensified if we don't, if we don't take care of the elementary parts. Consent education being introduced across the country is, is really wonderful. It's a great, it's a, it's a step in the right direction. It's really great. But if, if I can't speak to people about how they're doing, I can't have good consent conversations with someone in those intimate, highly charged, highly hormonal, highly emotional, highly fraught with risk of embarrassment or shame that conversation doesn't get easier yeah. <laughs> if, if I'm not able to just have good conversations with people. Consent, consent conversations almost exclusively have to happen in person. And if we're not cultivating experience and skills in human conversation and the ability to understand where other people are at and to negotiate around things that work, things that don't work, things that are a bit uncomfortable, things that might be, but under certain circumstances I can deal with, then the consent education will fall flat in practice because you've kind of gone to the the, the, the pointy end without having done the fundamental work. And when I was at school, I don't know how many times we had to hear this sort of stuff around 90% of your communication is nonverbal, you know, like it's your body language, it's the way you deliver it, it's all these kinds of things. And now that people have got way less reps in their human conversations, so we're getting text messages and people aren't more eloquent as a result of going to this, it's not like people are writing these lovely flowery, like the sun rises and the warmth of it hits my heart. And I, people aren't doing that. It's not, it hasn't, it hasn't made everyone better. (laughs) (laughs) It hasn't made any of that better. It's, it's made it all more simple, more basic, more primal almost. So we need to just keep putting people together and, and understanding that. I think that it's important for teachers and schools to come together and discuss how do we demonstrate humanity to the kids while we're encouraging it in them without putting our stresses on the kids. So we want to keep, we want to have a support network of teachers that can look after each other because we're open and honest about where we're at, where our workloads are at, where our stress levels are at. We want to demonstrate a level of that to the children without putting it on them. So we can be honest to them. So they can be honest to us and we can have a dialogue because we have to model that behavior in a way that has never been so important because they've spent 60%, 70% of all of their conversations now are not with human beings. So how do we model good human conversations? Well, it's not one-way communication. If you teach consent, but you don't teach interactions with the teachers or asking questions or a teacher saying, guys, today I'm knackered. I just can't today. In a way that's not like, oh, sit down because I've had a terrible night and you're making it worse. And there is a difference between... The sort of being honest and being human and, and lumping it all on kids who don't who aren't there to have your issues lumped on yeah. them. But if we don't, as schools and as communities and as and as people, work out how we're going to do that, and it can be different for every school because that you know every place has different challenges and they have different communities of and they have different goals and different values and those sorts of things to some extent. But I think it's really important that we start to go. How do we model that? 
so that teachers aren't just bottling everything up all day, every day amongst themselves, but also in front of the kids because you spend so much time in front of them. How do we model the behavior that we want, that productive communication of where we're really at, that honesty to kids so that they can see it, learn from it, try it in a safe environment with supervision, with feedback and develop skills to have good relationships and expand their ability to pay attention beyond a little screen or beyond the person just next to them or beyond just delivering a piece of schoolwork. And that's going to create better people who are better placed to solve big problems later on as their technical skills and their knowledge improves and their engagement improves. And if we don't teach them that, we can we can put them in front of a million things they won't understand and we won't see effective forward momentum on a lot of the serious challenges that we really need to see effective forward momentum on. Yeah. I've said this on Instagram before too. I think what I've really struggled with is the fact that we're now committed to being face-to-face. We're trying not to close schools. We're trying not to go back to remote. We know that it was done, but it wasn't done in a way that was overly beneficial for students to learn or even for teachers, to be honest. It was a very stressful time. But what we're trying to do is just go back to what we're comfortable doing. And the problem is we've had two years of extreme anxiety, trauma, issues that have that have brought a lot of things up for us as humans. And what we really need to do is exactly what you're saying, like have these conversations amongst staff around, well, how are we shifting our teaching? Because when I was taught how to teach and how I was taught back in the 90s, it was this teacher is your authority, you respect them, you do what they say. And yeah, that control allows you to tick things off a list. It allows you to get through curriculum. It allows you to disseminate information but the connection is what's missing and we as humans now now more than ever realize how important that is I'm wondering have you seen that in a whole school before that real focus on connection and community done in a really effective way because I'm yet to see it no no, I haven't and I reflect on this often and it's very difficult to engage a whole school because you need so many levels of engagement mm. people need to need to enroll in that in the belief that that's worth it yep and it is at some level there is extra work in there there's an extra emotional labor it is yep also sometimes it can seem like extra emotional labor but it's a more it's a more positive i find it like i find it difficult to sit in a chair all day for 10 hours it's very uncomfortable for me i don't like it it's also difficult for me to run for 50 kilometers but i prefer that because it feels more productive so yeah the emotional labor might be more in that it's sweatier work but it's more fulfilling it's better work and at the end of a day in my chair I feel like a sloth that with a sore back and at the end of running you know, a 50k race I feel like sweaty and a bit sore but I feel good and I feel like I've done something mm-hmm. and no one ever in in the history of mankind has come out as a 40 year old person and said my most inspirational teacher was the one that controlled the classroom the best and kept us all in our in our rows with our head down answering questions effectively ever no one has ever said that it's always the teacher that paid the most attention it's the teacher that showed up it's the teacher that was over my shoulder giving me that extra time it was the teacher that was that had my back when they could see things were going on and be like guys that's not okay or when they couldn't do the thing they said listen this is happening but it won't happen forever and you're okay and don't listen to them, they're no good. It's the teachers that give you the right positive feedback at the right time, but they built trust with you that meant that that particular moment could have a profound impact on your life 
that those same words at the same time from someone else couldn't have had. None of that has anything to do with whether or not you can control a classroom. Having said that, you have to find the way to be a human that can also maintain order and direction. Otherwise, you've just got this chaotic room that is also not productive and not good. No one says, oh, my best teacher was the one where we just threw paper at everyone and we're hanging off the walls and we just kick, have fights in the back and play cards. I had those teachers and they weren't my best teachers. Yeah, It is, it is a middle ground, but you have to agree at the beginning of all of this that, righto, well, how do we cultivate that as a goal? Mm. How do I take my frustration with the class to the staff room and to get support there where I walk in and say, Josh was a turd. My God, I can't, like, what can I do for this <laughs> guy he's just a nightmare like he's clever he, he mucks around he distracts people he's a smart ass he still gets his marks they're all right like I can't like academically I can't really but <laughs> he's so disruptive yeah he does my head in if you ha- if you yell at me like that in the classroom I'm like I just won 100% get stuffed you know good good on you I win I'm the winner see you later so you can't do that. So you can't take your yeah. frustration out in the classroom. But if you're in an environment where you can't, you also can't bring it to the staff room yeah. because they're like, well, work it out or we don't care or we've all got our own issues or whatever. And you've got to swallow it down. That's mm-hmm. not good as a teacher. Yeah. It's not a good environment. Sometimes you just want to get stuff out and there's nothing you can do. And everyone goes, Josh is notoriously annoying in class. So we can either come up with something together to help each other out or what do we need to do? Like who's going to talk to him? Who does he sort of respond to the best? Can you step up a bit in this moment? Because as a team in this school, if someone connects with you more, it doesn't matter if they're in your class. It doesn't matter if you've got them for PE or you've, you know, once a week or you've got them for English four times a week. Can you step up for them? Because, and know and be, and feel confident that I would do the same as a teacher so that the faculties can look after each other. Well, that doesn't happen very often because no one wants to admit that there's things going wrong in their classroom for fear of getting in trouble or being a pain or like they're going, oh, everyone else has probably got someone. So you have to be, you have to set up the environment from scratch almost to say, this is how we're going to deal with these things. This is how we're going to take our frustrations to each other to to deal with so that our curriculum days are actually productive and not just, mm. all right, we're going to do units three, four and five from the book. Everyone okay with that? Yeah, cool. It's how we're going to deal with the fact that these people are doing our heads in how are we going to deal with the fact that I'm pulling my hair out at home and I'm knackered and I'm tired and I'm over it and so are you and righto, like what can we do? But you have to be conscious. And I don't think there are any educational consultants that do that because they don't know how to deliver that kind of community change. It's not what they do. They deliver people are focusing on results a lot of the time. So right. you get those schools of thought around educational consulting around, oh, we just need to let the kids self-direct or, you know, we need to be more like Finland or, you know, what did John Hattie say this week? But it doesn't, it doesn't speak to the community of teachers and, and how you need levels. And if you consciously engage in a process of how we deal with the kids, how we deal with each other, what we take away with us, how we support one another, that that actually enhances the capacity to deliver the curriculum however you deliver it once you're in the classroom. So I'm going to speak from both the teacher perspective and a parent perspective, right? So I'm, I personally feel as though I had a lot of work to do around understanding my emotions and you know being able to move through difficult emotions rather than shutting them down suppressing them things like that and so that's something that I'm really big on with my children you can feel whatever feeling you just can't be destructive when you're feeling those feelings and we're going to move through them right it is so much harder and so much more effort 
to do that than to just tell my kids, get your shoes on, let's go, right? And so it's an investment, an investment that you make that is that is emotionally taxing, as we were talking about before. That is also an investment worth making at schools, but it's so much easier and so much more streamlined in terms of process to punish, to create punitive consequences. You have a detention, you're suspended, you're expelled. And you know what? The bad kids don't care. They will never care if they have 400 detentions. They don't care. As you said, I've won. I've got another detention. They think I'm, you know, a bad guy. It's so much more investment and so much more rewarding to create that connection, to find the mentor, to talk to that student on their level, to find out what they're they're good at and elevate them and empower them rather than to tell them they're rubbish, they're rubbish, they're rubbish. But that's whole school. And also, to be honest, systemic change to move that because it's not, that doesn't happen just at one school, that happens everywhere. And I find that to be, and as you just pointed out before, people don't get educational consultants in to talk about that no they They, they they don't do that yeah yeah, they get them in to go look these are the results you got last year let's talk about why little johnny didn't get 90 that's what they do yeah yeah and it's it's largely pointed at the top end and and again this this there's a literacy that people don't have to understand other people's circumstances you know you come Mm -hmm. you come into being into teaching and you are on yeah you're tertiary educated so by definition you've sort of You've, sep- you've got a separation from a certain socioeconomic reality in a lot of in a lot of ways. Not to say all teachers are privileged people, but there's a level of privilege, and and not all teachers have had the chance to engage with or have gone through uh, the challenges that people have in certain communities. Like they don't know. You've if, you've probably never been a refugee from Sudan. You've probably not you know been homeless for weeks on end or done those sorts of things. And so when you meet kids where that was. That might not be their current experience, but I don't, I don't remember anyone sitting me down and going, let's talk about what's happened from when you were born to now. No one ever did that. So what's mm-hmm. happening now? I mean, he looks all right. He's, he's healthy-ish, you know. He's, mm-hmm. he's in, his marks are okay. He's doing these things. Must be all right. And I'm not saying we need to sit down and pull trauma out of everybody, but people can't even understand what's going on. They go, mm-hmm. go to schools and they go, oh, everyone here is hopeless or this kid's hopeless or... Yeah. As soon as you're thinking that, as soon as the word hopeless sort of comes into the into the lexicon surrounding a child, then good luck to you. Mm. I've always just said, you find me the six-year-old whose fault it is that they can't read. Like, how is that ever their fault? Ever? Yeah. Six years yeah. old. What what possible responsibility could they have in that in that space? Well, that six-year-old becomes a ten-year-old, becomes a thirteen-year-old in year seven becomes a 15-year-old and then runs off and does whatever. And if we've just decided they're hopeless early days and not filled any gaps, yeah, it's annoying when you get a 13-year-old who's gone through all that. And yeah, there's mm. a lot of work to do. But if we culturally in the community, in the school community go, there's no rush. We've got this kid for at least three, four years. Mm-hmm. It's not that they need to hit this mark today. It's that mm. we want to keep them here for six years, but at least four and at the end of the four, I want them to be a functioning human being. So how do we do that? Where's mm. that at? Where's that outcome at? Because the other outcome is that we just give them punitive measure after punitive measure until they are so disengaged that there's no chance. And yeah. in that process, damage their ability to trust that any institution or any person will ever show up long enough for them to get the help that they need and they disengage from any other future opportunities because they don't believe that it's possible for anyone to actually care long enough. Mm. 
And those kids, the bar can be very low sometimes for what makes them feel really good. But also yeah. the, the, the bar to trust can be very high because they've been let down yeah. by the most significant people and institutions in their lives, which is kids, are their families and the schools. That's where they spend all their time. So you have this enormous privilege, but also this enormous responsibility to decide what are the outcomes that we want across the board for everybody? How do we want people to feel? And then how do we deliver tools to them and to ourselves, like not have different standards for how we want to look after ourselves and how we will look after the kids. Do you want to be put in detention as a teacher every time a kid underperforms? Absolutely mm. not. What? Why would I? How, how would that make me respond positively? Correct. How is that going to keep me in my job? Mm-hmm. Okay. So if this kid doesn't get a good mark, what are we doing? I'd like to circle back to you as a student. And I want to know, was there something that you wished had been cultivated at school that wasn't something that you feel was really missing or something that, you know, you think would have made you feel really empowered and and wonderful because you had this talent, something that you didn't get to show off or something that you've come to later that you thought, you know what, that actually would have made my life a lot better if I had learnt that at school. My my initial reaction is no, not really. I I didn't have like an amazingly, like I just full public education. I was very young. I started school young and then I skipped a year. So I was like okay. 11 in year eight, <laughs> you know, like it was. Can I ask why you skipped? Academically, you skipped? Yeah, yeah. Wow, okay. Yeah, so I, I started at four and then when I went to year seven, I was in an accelerated program. We went straight to year eight stuff. Mm-hmm. Um, what are your thoughts but, on that socially? Well, my th- I've obviously turned out okay. Yeah. Uh, there, are, there are significant challenges when your friends are a year level above you as well and mm-hmm. Because you, once you get to year 10 and you start, then you start doing like, you know, you're doing VCE units and things. So I've got f- some of my very best friends are, are several years older than me, mm. even though we were just peers at school. Yeah. And you don't, I don't really notice. Mum's a teacher. So she was very on the ball about like me being 11, trying to go to a party so I could kiss girls and do all this and being like, you're too young. No, you're not going. I'm like, this is, this place is a prison. Shit. <laughs> you know? This is bullshit, you know? And now I look at 11-year-olds and I'm like, what was I thinking? You know, like, are you serious? Of course you can't go to that bloody blue light disco. You're a child, like a proper full-on child, even if you're like a tall one with a huge head. Like, you're you're a child, dude. Like, relax. So, but like, by the time people at 16 had gone to pace, I could have been at uni then. (laughs) At, At that time, it was like, I could have gone to uni at 16. And then I was like, I stayed an extra year. I did a really long VCE. I did an extra year with extra subjects, so I qualified for um, what was it, youth allowance at the time. Yeah, yeah. So I did a weird half load at the end too, and that probably helped the transition out of school because I wasn't at school all the time in my very, very last year. A lot of my friends had finished from when I started school because they were older, and then then I was with the next year level down, and uh, I had this weird half half load. So I sort of did more work. I always had a job and doing all that kind of stuff. But I, I don't look back and go, oh, here's all the things that were terrible and that, they, that needed to change because I look at where I am now mm-hmm. and I go, now, functionally, I'm, I'm, really, I'm, in a, I'm really good. Yep. So I it's hard for me to lay the boot into anything that's happened to me and be like, this is terrible. What I always say to people is I am fortunate enough to have had all the support I needed for me to navigate all of the worst bits of the things that happened. 
academically, emotionally, physically, there was enough around that I was able to navigate it in a way that now I'm okay. People can be in the middle of of it. And I do work with some of the most privileged schools in the country. And there are people in the middle there just going, ah, we're we're no good. And I look at it, I'm like, this place looks like Hogwarts. It looks (laughs) like the most, you've got every unit, you've got psychologists and tutors and everything. I can't even, I didn't even know schools looked like this. I didn't even know this was possible. We had broken windows and asbestos and, you know, people mucking around and I got in trouble and I did all kinds of rat bag stuff. And and I was also had leadership positions and I really did that, treaded all of those things, working it out. And I've turned out okay. So I just say like, I'm always just advocating for all the right things around people. And then on top of that, systemically, I think if we have an example of what the best education looks like, and if it looks like the grammar schools, if it looks like Sydney Grammar and Melbourne Grammar and Ravenhall and all these kinds, if that's what it looks like, we should be advocating for that for every single person everywhere, not just in Australia, in Chile, in Tanzania, in Mongolia, everywhere. If we have an example of the very best possible education where kids come out happy and engaged and knowledgeable and caring with good ability to engage in community and have relationships and do those things, whatever that looks like, we should be trying to do that everywhere. And we should be trying to teach people to do that everywhere. But I think largely it comes to who are the people, who are the supports around you? What are the opportunities around you? How are you identifying them and engaging with them? And are you being encouraged to always be disappointed with what's happening? Are you always being encouraged to look at the bad things that happen and examine them? I feel like there's a lot of focus on individuals now in education and just more broadly in culture that damages people's ability to live a life beyond themselves in an effective and meaningful way. And so I never found that. I always grew up paying attention to everyone else. So my own things have never been my primary concern, whether that's a lack of stuff at school and there was heaps of stuff we didn't get that at the time I wanted or lack of money or lack of opportunity or whatever. It was always like looking around and going, well, what else is happening? What's going on with everyone else and what can I do? And because of that, I've I've never felt let down by by the opportunities because in the wash, I'm okay, you know? So I don't sit around and pine for something in particular. I had good teachers and bad ones. There were good opportunities and bad ones, great moments, terrible moments and, and everything in between. And I think that's probably as good as you're going to get of a exposure to what the world is like really in the end. You said that, you, that you're always able to look around you and sort of be aware, right? I mean, mm-hmm. technically children and teenagers are very centred on themselves. That's just psychologically what happens and they start to, to create you know, much more awareness. Where do you think that awareness came for you if you were having that so young? I've always been that way. Okay. I think at some level there must be a um, an aptitude, probably a little bit as well from being younger yeah. and having to observe to work it all out. Mm-hmm. That probably played into it. Obviously that's not conscious. You're just doing it because you're a kid. It's only something you can reflect on with experience later and, yeah. and get that feedback from mum and stuff like that as well, who's like, well, you were always just doing that to work it out. Uh, I remember... My sister, she went, she got a scholarship to a really prestigious high school and um, we went to a thing and someone came up to mum and said, you've done a really good job. Mm. Is this your son? She goes, yeah. She goes, you've done a really good job with him. She's like, who are you? First of all, (laughs) who are you? Second of all, how the hell do you know? Like we're just at this thing. Mm -hmm. And, uh, and she goes, well, I'm a, I'm a, 
I think she was like, I'm a journalist. I'm a foreign correspondent. I do work all over the world. And I was just watching him and it's just like, he's paying attention. People coming by, he's doing the things. He's really switched on. He's on the ball. And people don't do that unless you've done a really good job sort of thing. Hmm. But I was like, oh, thanks very much. You know, like, appreciate that. Mm-hmm. So, you know, I'm like maybe a late teen, early adult at that point in time, whatever it was. My sister's only 18 months younger than me, but because of the school gap, yeah. you know, I finished, I finished a fair bit in front of her. I think it's just something that it's, has always been in me, but then compound interest of doing it forever, you you, you get yeah. good at it and you, and you do these things. That's not that's not what people teach now. And even when people dip their toe into the stuff that I talk about, which is around helping people and community and those things, they use individual tools a lot of the time in the same way that when people say they want to build uh, resilient kids or whatever at school and they're focusing on good grades still, that they're mm. not they're not compatible all the time, or we can over-index the importance of of a particular thing. For instance, mindfulness and empathy like buzzwords everywhere mindfulness is get in your own head pay attention to your own thoughts be in your own space okay so this is wholly self-centric empathy in the way that most people teach it is how do you feel about someone else's problem if you feel like you care good you should feel or guess or have a proxy for what you think they feel to help you care about that other person. But first, you've got to feel the thing first and do the thing. Now, no disrespect to everyone because it's not these aren't useless things that have no place, but they are over-indexed. I could sit around and do all the empathy training in the world about what it might feel like to be in my third trimester. I'm not going to have any friggin' idea. I think a bit of pressure. I think probably my ankles are sore. I'm probably tired. I'm giggling over you know? here, yeah. And what, do I, do I need to go through that process before I can go, okay, third trimester, you've been pregnant for eight months, it's a lot of change, That pro- there's all these things happening, yeah. I can probably just adjust my behaviour or assist in, that, in some way around that mm-hmm. without even needing to go through that stupid process, you mm-hmm. know. And some of the stuff, there's no way I can really properly empathise. I can't take mm-hmm. a group of kids from a private school and say, now, close your eyes and imagine the rebels have run through your village and shot your dad in front of you and you've traipsed for 16 days across the desert to the refugee camp. And they're going, mm-hmm, yep, feel very okay. empathetic about this. You don't know. You don't have a clue. No. And yeah. it's disingenuous to pretend you could have a clue. Yeah. So that's you paying attention to you. Then the other thing is, how do we be grateful for what we've got? So you write a journal, your own little private little Heidi journal, where you pay attention to you and your life and what's happening to you, and you write the things you're grateful for happening to you because you need all good things to happen to you so that you can know your life is going well and things are okay. We don't need more of that. We already have a whole generation of people paying attention to themselves, relentlessly auditing what's happening in their life compared to everyone else. And what we do need is more of the gratitude where I say, Laura, Thanks so much for the opportunity to be on this podcast. That's really wonderful. I appreciate the opportunity. I'm grateful for the opportunity because what is gratitude if it's not like some like a kind of love, a kind of appreciation and love? And if you're hiding that from everyone and just making it for yourself, that's got like more in that's got more in common with shame than mm. with generosity. So all of these tools we're giving kids are just keeping them inside. You go to places where people are happy and functional and they have these things. You know, despite being poor, 
And it's because they're not paying attention to themselves all the time. They realize that there are problems bigger than themselves. They realize they're not alone in, in the struggle, that other people are struggling and that there is meaning and opportunity and community in looking to the people around you and going, hang on, how can I contribute? And some days I don't feel grateful for stuff. Some days I'm just annoyed and that's okay because I've been paying attention to everyone around me and I know everyone feels like that sometimes. Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. Everyone has those days. We've got this kind of weird first generation now of people as well who are having kids, having never spent any time with kids because Mm. no one's doing it all together anymore. They're not all, they're going, oh, this is so ridiculous. Who would have known that this happens with kids? And, And you're going, anyone who's spent time with kids knows that because that happens literally to everybody. That if you grow up in an environment where everyone's going through those times and having those moments and talking about them and people are engaged in each other's lives, none of this comes as a shock. So you don't need to go to therapy to talk about this thing that's only happening to you. You go, that happened to Jan. I'll talk to Jan. Your kid used to do this. You go, oh my God, he'll eat he'll eat dirt for a couple of weeks and then probably get over it and move on to the next disgusting thing. And you go, okay, cool. I don't need to freak out about it. <laughs> you know? Yeah. yeah. So I think when we're talking about those tools, when we're talking about those things, it's it's not how do I do more of my own thing about me, just me all the time. It's It's, it's expanding your circle of attention not to the whole world which is the step people are taking but to the people that you see and you're around every day how do i make these interactions a bit better how do i take my gratitude and make it a generous gratitude instead of a self and introspective gratitude how do i care without empathizing how do i care about people and believe that they deserve the best without needing to pretend that i feel what they feel or understand all of their experiences because you're not going to. Mm. And the way I tell people to do some of that stuff is just to say, just have the same aspirations for everyone that you have for the people you care about the most. What would you What would you want if that was someone you cared about most in the whole world? Would you want them to have a terrible education and a terrible and no food and no one giving a shit about them and no cuddles and no no respect and that they were getting in trouble all the time and there was no patience with them? Like, what would you like? Mm. Do that, advocate for that, encourage that, teach that, model that. And systemically, obviously, that means that, you know, we've got, there'll be a lot of changes, but you can bring it to the communities you're a part of. You can bring it to your families and your friendship groups and your schools and and your workplaces. And there are ways that you can set it up to make those things possible without sending everyone off to their room to have a think about how they feel about everything in the world themselves. When a lot of the time people don't have the tools to even, navigate their own feelings because they haven't got enough examples of other people going through things to help them have the literacy to even process their own lives. And that's why it's a real challenge to make that shift mm. because it is it is in some ways harder to measure whether or not everyone's looking after everyone. It's easier to just pull out your thing and say, I did I did my journal three days this week and I've done yep. my three gratitude things every morning and whatever. Yeah. 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 Well, how many people did you say thanks to? And if you remember, you're probably a bit of a shit bloke because you shouldn't remember <laughs> all the good things you did. Oh, that's the other thing. Like you shouldn't remember it. You should be doing these things all the time. So you can't even remember when the last time was you did it. You're like, I don't know. I'd say thank you to everybody. I said, have a great day. I told my mates I love them. Every day. I couldn't tell you the last time I told you, told him because I'm pretty sure it was just the last time I was on the phone. Like, I don't know how many times I did it. Do you know the problem with everything you've just said, Josh, is the fact that there's so much common sense that you just have to have to interpret everything you've said and you can't 
there's not a method that I could go now say thank you to everybody, but don't remember it and then do your journal, but then don't do. And that's the whole point is that we're so, we just want a catch all method. We just want something that goes, oh, if we follow this, then we'll be a good person. If we tick all these things off, then we're, and we're, and I think that really does stem from school. We start here, we end here, and this is how we get there. And the thing is, where's the humanity in that? Yeah. Well, you at know, JBN, we have frameworks. That's how we, that's how we do it. So we, we, we can come in and do this kind of stuff in, in, in organizations, in schools. But you, you end up with frameworks that are dynamic because schools are different mm-hmm. and people are different. And you have to be prepared to engage in a, in a, in a framework rather than a, necessarily a step-by-step sort yep. of situation. People say first principles and stuff and then they just ignore them or people say values and they don't know what they mean. And, and it's about really teasing out that in a different way, which is, which is work that we do all the time because I, I hate the idea of going into a place and they're like, we want to do some good. I go, yeah, great. But like, if you don't look after the people here, who cares? I don't, this is the first spot. Keeping people employed. Like, I don't want you to sack 700 people and then try and do something with me to help people get employed. I would rather help you keep those 700 people employed. That's what I want to see. I don't want to see you contribute something over here to help kids get work and and get trained up to do a job. If we've got a 40% graduation rate here, let's let's get let's bump that up. Let's get that up to 90. Let's get what well, how do we do that? Where are the gaps yeah. here? You've got a hand on these people right away. And so there are frameworks, but because well, JBN doesn't fit neatly into any individual category of, of thing. And so it can be difficult yeah. because you need to you need to first identify there's a problem and you need to be like, this is an issue. And then you need to not treat it staff issues, community issues, student issues as separate things that need to be treated all separately. You need a direction. And then you've got to admit, we need some help with the direction. And yeah. no one no one wants to do that because we can just have this person come in do a speech to everyone, tell a story about how things were difficult, then they got better, now you can do it too, here's one tip. And everyone goes, great tip, very moving speech. And we all get on with our lives and the same things happen over and over and over again. And mm-hmm. and the, and if, if you don't have a build a framework in, it's not dynamic enough to deal with changes like COVID or post-COVID or <laughs> Russia invading the Ukraine or whatever the thing is. We don't know what's coming. So if it's too rigid, it's not going to work. If it's yep. too simple, then you're going to have gaps that you don't have the tools to fill. And because of the trend towards simplicity, the most complex people, which in your case are the most complex children who have the most complex needs and have had the most complicated challenges in their lives, are the ones that just get left behind. People just put them in the too hard basket because according to this system of help or this series of interventions, they are too hard to help. We literally yeah. don't have a tool to help this kid. And we could, we really could. So if you want to make the case for better support and better communities, sometimes you can't wait until the government says, I oh, will fund another teacher's aid. You've got to find a way to prove to the community and to the government and to the principal and to the head of department, this is better for everyone. Now can we, can we more effectively fill this spot with support? whether it's another person or more time or more flexibility yeah. or whatever it is. I love that. Last question. It's kind of a strange one, but I'm really interested to see what you're going to say. Well, here we go. <laughs> what is something you didn't realise you needed until it was invented or created? So something that you didn't necessarily grow up with but that's come into your life, mm-hmm. what is that thing? That I didn't know that I needed 
I didn't buy an air fryer in lockdown, so I can't say I can't say that I've never used one. But a lot of people have uh, have been advocating for those in the last little while. I've seen um, what I didn't know that I needed, or something that's been created, or something that you found out, or something you've learned about, you know, in your life that hasn't always been there. That you're like, oh, where's this been? I think I, in terms of things, my thing collection has always been incredibly practical. So. Mm. And the things that I like now and have are just upgraded or expanded versions of the stuff I had as kids. I've got lots of books, yeah, cameras and stuff. That's it. That's like things that I can use for work and leisure. That's always been my you know, running shoes, uh, those sorts of things. What I understand that people need, but I have a terrible relationship with, and it's not a thing, but it's like breaks, like resting, time off. I don't, I don't. I, I think a side effect of intense uncertainty is, as a kid and as a teenager and then even as an adult uh, at times, the ability to just actually properly rest, disengage, yeah. have like a break, not we like rest in the day. I can have a minute, you know, and I can yeah. have a sleep and whatever. But I am terrible at like, all right, I'm going to take a couple of weeks off and and properly disconnect from what's happening without stress. Mm. I, st- I still haven't managed to really work that out properly for me and I'm pretty old now, so I don't know how to, maybe that's just going to be my life. But I, it's one of the things where I'm, I'm fully like do as I say, don't as I do, you know, like take some time, have a, have a breather, do these things, get away from stuff and I'm poor at it. So I think I never really understood the value of it. I worked every school holidays I could. I did, I've always just done stuff. I've always just gone all the way through worked late, worked long, worked through, not had breaks. And there's some, obviously there's some benefits to that and there's some things I've been able to do as a result of that being my sort of default position. But I do understand the importance of being able to stop. And so again, to, to talk on a community level, how do we provide people an environment where, they've, where they're afforded the chance to do that without their world crashing down because they had a couple of weeks off? And certainly for a lot of people I work with, they're unable to because their world will come crashing down if they take two weeks mm. off. And that's gross because it's a horrible place to be. Mm. So it's not a thing, but probably as time has gone on, I've come more and more to understand the importance of being able to do that and provide that opportunity to people. So I used to just be like, just go, just do it. Shut up, get on with it. <laughs> you know, like, it's a hard one. I'm with you. It's a hard one to do without an element of guilt. Yeah. To actually take a break and be in that space mm-hmm. without considering what has to happen, what has happened, what you're not doing. I don't think I've mastered that either. I think that's a hard one. No, and, and when you write it down, if you if you did go through like, okay, well, what am I worried about? Well, I might be worried mm-hmm. about some work that needs to be done. Okay, I can probably get in front of some of that, but I know more is going to be generated while I'm stopped. So that's, I'm just going to maybe, that's something I just have to be comfortable with that when I come back or, or lay off some work or get better at communicating to people don't, talk to me for two weeks or whatever. Yeah. Then you've got things like the mortgage. Well, that mm-hmm. has to be paid. And if I take two weeks holiday, what if I get sick? So you have that uncertainty and you go, well, that shit, how are we in a place where that's the that's where we're at for a start? Yeah. We're like, I can't even take a break for fear of it chopping into my time should something horrible happen. That's shit. So 
that's something that uh, culturally and economically we can we could definitely address that we could address it tomorrow same with it's the same mechanism as childcare for parents as well and and maternity paternity leave and you're going well how am i going to have time to myself because i've got kids again like if you're in a community and you go Laura, I've got the kids, like whatever, I'll take them each day for a couple of days. You, I'll do that. You do it in a little bit. You have three days off. Don't even worry about it. Like whatever, they can hang out with me. Back in the day with uncles and aunties and my, my, half my family are Polynesian, like there's just kids. It's like almost, it's not even anyone's kid really. Like yeah. the bed they sleep in mostly, but whatever. If there's a kid, you pick it up. If it's crying, look after it. If it's doing something naughty, you say, hey, stop it. You know, like yeah whatever we everyone we've all got responsibilities that means you can go and be like i need a nap i'm hung over look after the kids whatever and you have this guilt-free moment how do we provide that as a community how do we make that more normal to do and a lot of that comes back to like how do we build trust and we can't build trust through text messages so again you've got to be aware of people's lives you've got to be paying attention to them you've got to have good honest dialogues you've got to You've got to be prepared to know like that someone can tell you when they're at their edge or before their edge so you can help out and that vice versa. And as you go through the list of the things that that stress you out about rest, then you can see that so many of them can be mitigated by strong communities. So many of them can be mitigated by having good networks of just people around you. Like there's a a huge human element to that. And the other, the other element, the financial element is, is, is a concern for a lot of people. And that's something that I try and work on a lot. But the weird thing is, in my work, I see that people who have less financial stress often have less community around them to take out that slack. And the people who have great community around them are often coming from places where they're financially uh, under significant strain. So we have this like human and logistics elements that are out of balance all the time, one way or the other. And that somewhere in the middle, if we can reduce that inequality of economic inequality, as well as that community inequality, and we make that a focus, again, people in the middle, everyone's like, oh, this is much better. We're all much more comfortable. We actually get a breather. Mm. And again, this is stuff that I try and do and advocate for, but I'm not great at it. (laughs) Like I'm the first to say I'm also not great at taking time off. So it's something I've come to understand is more important as, I, as I've got older, for sure. And, and as I've seen the effects of no time off on people more and more and more uh, in, in my work. Thank you so much for all your time. As I said to you before we got recording, it was just lovely for me to have you interacting with me rather than just via socials. Can you tell everyone where they can find you if they want to follow you or find out more about the Just Be Nice project. Yeah, yeah. If you've battled all the way through this podcast, thank you. And, and thank you for having me. I, I really appreciate okay. it and, and for reaching out and uh, and giving me the chance to sort of yarn for, for a good hour and just chat your ear off. But um, uh, you can find me at Josh Reed Jones. Reed is R-E-I-D. So Josh R-E-I-D Jones is just my name on, on all the things. I think um, Instagram and, and Twitter and I have a TikTok now against against my that's very brave. Thing. Yeah, I mean, it's literally just the same stuff, but it's on there if that's where you prefer to consume little short clips of me talking about stuff. <laughs> and the Just Be Nice project, you can find at JBN, like Just Be Nice, jbnprojects.com or at JBN Project on all of the places as well. And you can check in and, and say good day and, and do those things and reach out via email or send me a message or whatever. I'm, I'm pretty uh, pretty accessible, so... And I have to say, based on my contact with you, Josh gets back to people and, yeah, that's you know, right. which is amazing. And so am I. I'm so grateful you came on. Thank you. No, thanks. Thanks for having me. And I hope that, uh, you know, this is provides some value to some people and everyone has a really super wonderful day ahead. <laughs> 
Thank you.